Welcome to You Can't Get to Heaven in a Miniskirt. My name is Jessica. And my name's Sarah. And if you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Heaven in a Miniskirt. And you can go to our website at heaveninaminiskirt.com. Today, we have a really interesting interview. And this was Sarah's guy. So Sarah, who is this gentleman that we were talking to? So we interviewed Shane Claiborne. And I did not think that Shane Claiborne would ever get back to us, in all honesty, because he's a best-selling author, and he's a pretty well-known Christian activist. And when I was growing up, I had read his book, The Simple Way, which really emphasized following the teachings of Jesus and things like social action and very anti-violence, anti-gun ownership, anti death penalty. And so Shane, like I said, is a speaker and activist. He actually worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, and then he founded The Simple Way in Philadelphia, which is an organization that helps advocate for all kinds of different causes. He's big on advocating for people being released from the death penalty, increased gun control. Yeah, and we talked a lot about the death penalty and his work on death row, and it's so interesting. So he heads up a organization called Red Letter Christians. What I really liked about Shane is that, like Sarah said, he advocates for actually living like Jesus, like in an actual, let's be good people, let's help people. Like like a sermon on the mount, do unto others mm-hmm. as you have them do unto you, love your neighbor. And he truly lives that from what I understand in our conversation. Yeah, I felt like we had a great conversation. We definitely don't agree on everything. A little bit of a trigger warning, we do talk about abortion because Shane is pro-life, and when we're talking about his newest book, Rethinking Life, it does mention abortion, but it also encourages Christians to love people and be pro-life across the spectrum of life. So, you know, really advocating for people, really advocating for homeless people, low-income people, going against things that we already mentioned, like the death penalty and guns. Mm-hmm. And so we're pro-choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just so you know. And you know what? I, I I just, I didn't want to have an abortion debate. That's not what we were here to do. He believes in what he believes, but still I am pro-choice. And, and so that was tough. If you don't want to hear abortion talk, we don't get into it too much, but it is mentioned a few times. Definitely a lot of talk about the death penalty and death row. So trigger warning there. But other than that, though, it was a really great conversation. And when we started this podcast, I really didn't expect to talk to a lot of Christians. I really just, I don't know what I expected when we started. And it's been really refreshing to talk to people like Shane, who are actually living how I believe Christians should live. This is what Jesus wanted. If you think Jesus was real and Jesus was God, you should read what he did and follow his footsteps, not the complete opposite, which is what we are seeing a lot. But it's nice to know that not everybody's like that. And he advocates for Christians to stop being so divisive. Like it's pretty interesting for us because his experience as an American who's nonpartisan in the United States where the political system is so different and where religion and politics are so intertwined. So we get into that a little bit about the rise of Christian nationalism and his perspective on that's really interesting because he's not about it at all. I was telling some people about our interview and how we were going to talk about Christian nationalism and they were like, what's the hat? And I was like, oh no, oh no, you don't know, which is fine if you don't know, but please look into it because it's real. And this is how Roe v. Wade was overturned. And it's good to be aware that these things are happening. Like we literally have had messages back and forth with people 
on Instagram who are like, I'm a Christian nationalist and there's nothing wrong with this. Why would you be against having the laws of the Bible written into the legal code of a country? So it's, <laughs> yeah. And so Shane will give his take on that. <laughs> They're like, I saw The Handmaid's Tale and that shit's good. Yeah, so... So, he didn't talk about that as much, but we could definitely have gotten to a conversation specifically about Christian nationalism. I'm sure he'd have a lot to say. Sarah met him, actually, in, what did you say, 2014 oh, or... Yeah, I met... No, like, 2011, 2012. I was, like, newly an atheist, and I was fangirling, and, yeah, yeah saw yeah. him and told him that I was an atheist who came to see him. But he didn't remember And he was, me. like, sweet. Yeah. And even in our podcast, we're like, we're not Christian. He's like, that's rad. I don't yeah, because he had no idea. Yeah, he had no clue who we were, which was probably the best part that he just like blindly came on a podcast because he loves people so much he's just like whatever like i'll talk to you and that's what's so wonderful is that he had no idea who i know i was like honestly i was shocked he came on but he seems like yeah. a really cool guy very humble very passionate yeah. about what he does you might end up being passionate to help people after the podcast i hope you enjoy and we'll be back in two weeks with just an episode with sarah and i and it's going to be a juicy one so get excited and enjoy the interview yes i love you bye i met you in halifax once okay like a really long time ago it would have been like 2011 i think okay cool so sarah's fangirling a little bit oh you're easily <laughs> impressed yeah <laughs> and where are you shane i'm in philly today it's where i've been for 20 years or so and i am home and had an adventure crossing your border. I was in Canada last week. So oh, yeah. Yeah. I have you? lots of border stories. But where was I? I was in Alberta in Ed Edmonton. Nice. Yes. But our work chopping up guns got me, trapped me at the border for a minute. Awesome. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I don't know what we're talking about, but we can talk about whatever you want. We were just talking before this, actually, Sarah and I, because we know that you do a lot of anti-gun like rallies, chopping up guns and making things out of guns and bullets. And we don't have as much of a gun problem in Canada. So it's a little yeah. tough for us to have much of an opinion. I'm anti-gun, but it's just not the same here. We, we should probably describe our audience a little bit. So you have yeah, tell idea. me a little bit about it. Cool. Yeah. So our podcast is called You Can't Get to Heaven in a Miniskirt. And yes. I don't know if you heard that song growing up. But it was like a campfire song we used to sing at Christian camp. This is a real thing. This is a real <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a real yeah. thing. And so we are both no longer Christians. I would identify as agnostic and Jessica, I think, is the same. But our podcast, we have progressive Christians that listen. We have atheists. Okay. We have people all in between. So we're trying to bridge the gap with all of this polarization. And I guess there's all kinds of things we want to pick pick your brain on definitely like christian nationalism being one of them yeah cool we'll have a good time yeah so i'll be the translator if there's any christianese but i suspect you might have less than some of the podcast guests we've had before i would suspect yeah <laughs> so shane sarah's probably going to lead the questions a bit because she knows a lot more about your work and so maybe you can get us started sarah yeah so i guess like i remember reading irresistible revolution way back like in my teen years and I love the concept of red letter Christians and about looking really at what Jesus said because there's so much noise within Christianity outside of that but I think even as someone who's not a Christian Jesus had a lot of really good things to say and I think that if people all kind of treated people the way Jesus did that we wouldn't have a lot of the issues that we have right now in the church and outside the church so that was my kind of background and then when you came and spoke in Halifax it was either it might have been spring 2012, 
but I went up to you and I was fangirling. I was like, I'm an atheist, but I came to see you anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> just because like I had been, I don't know, I had been so moved by the movement that you had. And I really felt like it was so important within Christianity for people to be like, what did Jesus actually say? And I guess I would love if you could get started by telling people a little bit about your story, who you are, what's a simple way, and kind of what you're doing now. <laughs> and what's le- red leather? Red letter Christians. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. I have, that's a little bit of a tongue twister. Yeah. Red letter Christians. Totally. Yeah. We're I know gonna that's a big a, question. <laughs> we're going to have a good time. Yeah. First of all, Red Letter Christians is, has been around for about a decade, and we get our name from, interestingly enough, it was a dude that didn't seem to have much to do with Christianity that kind of gave us the name. It was a, get this, a secular Jewish country music radio DJ in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> that I was interviewing a friend of mine, and he was kind of going, I've read a lot of the Bible, and there's parts of it that I love. There's also parts of it that I find really confusing, even troubling. And but then he said very nonchalantly, but I've always liked the stuff in red. And some of the old Bibles have the words of Jesus highlighted in red in the gospel. And that's what he was talking about, right? So he said, You guys seem to like the stuff in red. You should call yourselves red letter Christians so that you kind of differentiate between the other Christians. Oh my gosh, <laughs> and, uh, is that actually where the name? <laughs> that's so good. Totally. I know that. That's great. <laughs> and so it kind of stuck. And now there's all kinds of shirts here in the U.S. that say, I'm the love your neighbor kind of Christian, not the storm the capital kind or whatever. But, but, you know, Gandhi, a bunch of years ago, he was asked about Christianity and he said, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. So that's kind of what we're after. A lot of us are very aware that Christians have not always acted in ways that we're proud of or that we would even think resemble Jesus in any remote way. But I, I kept leaning into Jesus. I I, <laughs> I guess I haven't given up on Jesus because of the embarrassing things that Christians have done in his name. And I'm trying to sing a better song. It's kind of like you go to a bad concert, you don't give up on music, but you do want to have a little better tune happening. So I was raised in the Bible Belt in East Tennessee. That's where I kind of started my own spiritual journey. I went through, I kind of got immersed in lots of different streams of Christian faith. I was raised Methodist, but then I got kind of bored. I dipped out and got involved in the charismatic movement because they're wild and they believe yeah. in miracles. And <laughs> That's all us that. too. Same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's some bones to spit out there at its own weirdness in some ways, but there's things that I've really held on to from all of those pieces of my journey. And then I really grew to admire Mother Teresa. So I went over to India with some of my college friends and we worked with her for an entire summer. And that was massively formative for me. It also like helped me see a version of Christianity that I really loved and that did remind me of Jesus and that didn't have all the political baggage and weirdness of the stuff that we see now. Mother Teresa wasn't perfect, but she sure She lived out a very beautiful version of her faith. Came back to the U.S. from India, and it was shortly after that that we started our community on the north side of Philly. So I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but this is our 25th year. We are a quarter of a century old, started back in the 1900s. And it's awesome. (laughs) We've been after it, doing all kinds of different stuff, building a little village here that is rooted in our faith, but 
people of all different faiths and no faith in particular that are a part of our kind of extended family here. And uh, Red Letter Christians is still the work I'm doing, kind of trying to change the narrative of Christianity, like working to amplify really beautiful voices, writers, speakers, musicians that are living out a love-centered version of the Christian faith. Yeah, written a few books over the years, but that's what we're up to, y'all. Oh, and I should say, we were talking about this beforehand, that we do a lot of different stuff. So we're working to abolish the death penalty, things that you Canadians are way ahead of us on. But we've got this absolute tragedy of a public health crisis of gun violence. And so we've got more guns than people now in the United States of America. And, uh, and wow. so we've been chopping them up. We take donated guns. And I think people are mostly listening to this. But we, we make shovels and garden oh. tools, plows, oh, that's amazing. all kinds of stuff out of them. I saw you made a bike out of out of guns. There is a bike made out of gun barrels, and we're working on that. The one that you, I think that you saw recently, yeah. is one of our blacksmiths and welders that had me riding a tall bike, right? One of those like 10 foot yeah. bikes or whatever that you yeah. made. And I'm on it riding. And I said, the only thing that would make this better is if it was made out of guns. I mean, <laughs> afterwards, he's like, we're on it, man. We're going to do that. That's the next step. Oh yeah. my gosh. That's so fun. I like the metaphor of that, like taking something awful and making something better with it. Yeah, and that, ori- that original inspiration came from the biblical prophets, Mike and Isaiah, that talk about beating swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks. And we said, that's a what a beautiful thing, like thinking of metal that's crafted to kill being recrafted. So we said, we don't have a lot of swords, but we got a ton of guns. So <laughs> no. let's see if people want to donate them. And we've been just for 10 years, like guns, I think last year, our l- larger national network decommissioned a thousand guns and repurposed those into art and garden tools. And we say life-giving things. So we're doing it all the time. And it's very therapeutic just to beat the crud out of an AR-15. And we're also centering the stories of people who have been impacted around the country as we do these kind of live demonstrations. But I mean, all that for me came right out of like my neighborhood in on the north side of Philadelphia, seeing too many lives that were cut short by gun violence and wanting to do something about it. So sometimes I tell my evangelical friends that I hold up one of these shovels made from a gun and I say, this is what a gun looks like when it gets born again. Um, and, you know, every, every time we're doing it, though, we're kind of declaring all things can be made new. And even someone who is committed an atrocious crime like is more than the worst thing they've ever done and they can be transformed our country can be transformed it doesn't have to stay the way it is so you know when we're transforming metal we're also going policies can also be transformed so let's talk Mm -hmm. about that too yeah so i know you'd mentioned that your organization is fighting for certain policies so the main ones would be gun laws and capital punishment i like to think that we have a very comprehensive way of thinking about life. And I just wrote my newest book is called Rethinking Life, but it's about the sacredness of every person. And I think if we had a framework that wasn't just reactionary to every little issue, but was sort of a, some traditions of Christianity have had this like idea that this is a seamless garment, you know, or we have a pro-life from womb to tomb, or this idea that we want to be consistently championing life, not just on one issue, but on all of them. And so, you know, I came to recognize the obvious contradiction that many of us that grew up saying we were pro-life 
we were also pro guns, pro war, pro pro, yeah. pro death penalty, like not so pro life on everything other than abortion. And Christians are actually the obstacles to life rather than the champions of it. So we get this. I know y'all in Canada, you think this is already unhinged, but Christians are the highest gun owning demographic in America. We own guns at a higher rate than the general population. We're the biggest supporters of gun rights. And so there's all that, that to me was very troubling. And it's the same with the death penalty. We're the biggest supporters of capital punishment in America. In fact, it wouldn't even stand a chance if Christians didn't support it. It's Christian governors like Greg Abbott, who's actually Catholic in Texas. um, And my home state of Tennessee, it's the often called the buckle of the Bible belt. So 95% of executions happen in the Bible belt. So that's the kind of twisted version of our faith that is not for life. And that, that's why, you know, I was just down in Nashville with Brother Justin Jones and the other, we had three folks that were expelled from the House of Representatives, or two of them were the two African-Americans and that got into trouble for protesting gun rights in the middle of that. So all of this, like to me, it's fueled by my faith and I collaborate with people who have other motivations, but the same kind of end goals and desires. So we're working for the abolition of the death penalty, for around gun violence, the environment, all that is yeah. a part of what it means for me to be for life. Wow. Sarah and I have been doing this podcast for a few months and being kind of immersed in Christian culture, mostly like social media culture and negative Christian culture and not progressive people. And it's really refreshing to hear this side of it. These are the kind of voices that we want to amplify because this is what it should, in my opinion, what Christianity has always been in my mind and what should be. Yeah. And I think it's hard because we see on social media, we see those very polarized views because people that are generally in the center, they might not be as loud about their beliefs or as political. And we have American listeners. It seems like a lot of people that we're connecting with happen to be American, but I think it's because religion is something that's so much more entwined with politics down there. And that gets complicated, I bet. for Yeah, totally. That's what we began to see is some of the loudest voices of Christianity in public are not the most beautiful voices or faithful voices. And often that's being, that's being generous. Uh, (laughs) Um, But I'm not ready to concede the faith. I really like even calling myself a Christian. I I still really am fueled by that. I, I, real genuine love for God. And and that fills a lot of what I do. And I think it's what we talk about at Red Letter Christians is the way that we change the narrative is by changing the narrators and amplifying other voices that are really beautiful, connecting Jesus and justice. And the fact is, you know, uh, those, I don't know Justin Pearson quite as well, but Justin Jones down in Tennessee that has been in the forefront of a lot of the beautiful things happening down there. He's really fueled by his faith. He's a child of the church and still really, but he's outside of the most toxic versions of kind of white evangelicalism that I think have misrepresented our faith. So for a lot of folks here in the U.S., like saying no to Trump evangelicalism isn't the end of their faith. It's maybe the beginning, you know, it's it's kind of the the start of a more generative and beautiful version of faith. So I think there's some things that we got to say no to before we can kind of close the door on some of the ugly stuff and then be open to maybe something new that's born out, out of the compost of Christendom, as we say. <laughs> I like that. When you started Red Letter Christians, did you know that this was this is the direction that it was going to be headed in. Did you have the vision in mind when it started or has it morphed into something bigger than you would ever imagined? 
There's definitely a hunger there. Over and over, I get letters, many of them from folks who wouldn't call themselves Christians that say, I knew that there was more. I knew that there was more to Christianity than sex scandals and cover-up bishops and patriotic pastors and MAGA hat-wearing evangelicals and all this stuff. Like, I knew there was more. So we've tried to create a home without it being feeling weird, just to say, this is a movement of folks that we do love Jesus. And we're also quite ashamed of what some versions of Christianity have done. And we're, like I said, we're really good collaborators. So we're working together with lots of different groups that wouldn't call themselves Christians on some of these issues. But for a lot of us, I think we do want sort of a sense of belonging and being a part of something. And, you know, here in the the U.S., like the kind of polarizing political two-party system that we're in hasn't exactly helped with that because the conservative right is sort of colonized Christianity. And part of that is because progressive folks have just sort of thrown the towel in and they're a little timid to talk about faith or to have versions of faith that, you know, are about welcoming immigrants and caring for the earth and those sorts of things. So they've kind of tiptoed around some of the spiritual parts of that. And I think that's made people feel a little bit spiritually homeless on some of that when it comes to political parties. And I'm not partisan. I I don't have a lot of fidelity to either party. And Red Letter Christians is a not, I mean, by nature, we're a nonprofit, but we're also, we don't endorse candidates and things like that. But for me, a lot of this is not about left and right. It's about right and wrong. And it's about like, like something like welcoming immigrants for the love of everything good and holy. I mean, like the scripture says, you should welcome the stranger as if they were your own flesh and blood. That's what the Old Testament says. The New Testament says, when you welcome the foreigner, you might be entertaining angels unawares. Jesus says, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. I mean, it doesn't get much more central to that. And in our country, some of our highest numbers of asylum seekers and refugees have come under Republican presidents, even though our most recent presidents have had the lowest numbers of immigrants and asylum seekers, refugees. And that was the same under Trump. It's also the same under Joe Biden now. In fact, it kind of feels like a lot of Trump's policies are still in place on immigration. There's other things that have changed, but, and things like the death penalty. Obama was for the death penalty. Biden flipped, but we're still expecting a lot more. We're asking him to actually tear down the execution chamber that the federal government uses. And he can do that. Like, we would love to see that. What's What's an an execution execution chamber? chamber? It's a building that's designed for one purpose, which is to kill people. So um, that's bad. Yeah. And sadly, we've been outside of it many times, praying and vigiling. And I've been to so many of these executions. So this is a little in the weeds for Canada, but I think all of this like matters because it is about partisanship. And it's things like, like, for instance, military spending. George Bush had like a record military budget, but then Obama raised that and then Trump raised that and now Biden raised that. So we're still spending unfathomable amounts of money on militarism and war while our schools are bankrupt and we don't have health care and all this stuff. So you start to see where Martin Luther King was so right when he said a country that continues to spend so much money on military defense rather than social uplift is is approaching a spiritual death. And although we are in Canada and this isn't something that we have dealt with directly, we're so closely tied to the U.S., in our news. And we have our own divisions, especially with COVID. I don't know if you saw much about the Freedom Convoy and that definitely 
made a major divide. So it's almost like we're, it feels like sometimes Canada is heading in the same direction. Yeah, I've seen some of that. I was actually up there in the, in kind of the later part of COVID, you know, I still had to get tested like a whole bunch coming back and forth and stuff. But I remember the anti-vax folks that were in the streets and the caravan and stuff. So some of that did mirror what's happening here. I wrote an extended piece about a mask-free church. So this is in the middle of COVID before vaccines and stuff that they didn't allow masks because they said basically God will protect us. But then I noted the obvious irony that many of them had weapons in the church service. So it's like, we don't need masks to protect us because God's got our back, but I'm going to carry a Glock. <laughs> I just, I you cannot. Know, like Unbelievable, the holes in that theology. <sighs> so I wrote a piece called, uh, actually called it Christian nationalism's Delta variant, because this is when we had the Delta variant of COVID. <laughs> this is a version of this kind of, Christian nationalism that is more resilient, it's nuanced, and it's really scary because it is, in its own spiritual way, it's deadly theology in, in very real ways too, has the potential to to cost lives. Do you feel like there was an uptick in Christian nationality during COVID in the States? A lot of things surfaced, right? I heard someone once say that Donald Trump didn't change America, he revealed America. You know, I think that there were a lot of things below the surface, like, you know, in Charlottesville, when we had straight up Nazis and white supremacists that are marching in the streets and and killed someone, Heather Hired. And then he defends that. Like, I think that there was this emboldening when he said to the Proud Boys, stand, be ready and stand back or whatever, all that stuff, right? It was not even that coded. It was pretty, pretty overt. And I think it emboldened a lot of that activity, which, of course, we saw really surface on January 6th, where you saw Jesus flags right next to the Confederate flag, right? And mm-hmm, Trump yeah. flags and people that that dude with the horns that, you know, is praying. And he, if you watch that, I've posted it multiple times because he prays in Jesus name. So this is not just kind of some, like, I mean, it's obviously a cult and a heresy, but it's trying to use Jesus. As my friend Amanda Tyler says, it's trying to use Jesus as a, as a mascot and to camouflage hatred as Christianity and sort of hide behind the Christian faith. And please, no religion's exempt to that. We've had seen the same thing done with Judaism, same thing done with Islam, but it is really like sickening to see folks use Christianity to justify violence and hatred and bigotry and so many of the things that Jesus died this hatred yeah and just the issues that people are making such a stink about like people shooting bud light cans because there's a trans woman on the front of it and it's like do you are you not more concerned about all the school shootings so i guess i find it hard sometimes because i feel like our for you page on our tiktok is just it's just all that So we're seeing kind of the worst of the worst sometimes. So we have to take a lot of mental health breaks. And speaking of which, do you find that some of these issues can be very overwhelming? And how do you kind of deal with like these issues plus being on social media? I find virtual activism exhausting. And I generally find screens very, they, it seems like they're very obviously flat, but they're also, it it just like kind of suck the energy out of you. So I'm trying to spend more time in looking into eyes instead of screen pixels. So what keeps my joy and hope and everything alive, even with all the funk and, and the craziness is teaching kids to juggle in the backyard. We're planting, we're planting gardens now and 
like get to get our hands dirty and the kids have made all these beautiful murals and we're and even on the heart issues visiting people on death row you know writing letters of folks that are incarcerated that's real stuff Mm -hmm. and when i look at like matthew 25 which i don't assume folks will know but this is a really important part of the gospel where jesus talks about the least of these and he said when i was hungry did you feed me when i was in prison did you visit me when i was a stranger did you welcome me in they're all really concrete actions you know of love and compassion And that takes some energy, but it also gives back energy. Even friends that I have that have been executed. I was riding with a guy that was facing execution. His name's John Ramirez. We got to know his family a little bit and was trying to support him. And so I asked him, could I send you some books or something? At the time, it looked like he only had a few weeks to live before his execution. Something like, maybe you want some prayer books or whatever, devotionals. And he's like, he very kindly said, no, I've got enough of those and I love them. But he said, I've been trying to learn origami. So could you send me an origami <gasps> oh book? And so I've got this like butterfly that people probably can't see, but he made me this as wow. one of his like last letters that he sent me. Kind of this defiant hope when he yeah. was executed in the state of Texas. But I think like that was, it's so painful to watch our government still execute people, you know, when most of the world has moved on from this terrible practice. But those relationships, like they keep my hope alive, they keep my joy alive, even when it feels like he lost, you know, like he he was killed. But that's, I also know where we've come from and what God has helped us make it through. And that keeps giving me energy. My neighborhood, even as it's absolutely nuts, and we've got the highest gun deaths that we've ever had in the history of the city of Philadelphia, like our neighborhood is, I love it. I mean, it's, we've got these deep relationships. There's this kind of defiant hope that's here too. But when I'm just looking at all the stuff on social media, I get really tired. So I think that's why, like, if you only have virtual friends, you're going to be lonely. And if you only have virtual activism, I think it's easy to get exhausted because you're just bombarded with information. Whereas like, I want to be out there with people. And even if it's in the tough places, we did a bike ride along the border of the US and Mexico and heard some of the hardest stories I've ever heard. But these are the true stories of refugees and immigrants. Some people need to hear those and they need to know those because we're just, we're really good at having opinions about people we don't know. <laughs> you Absolutely. Know? Yes. It's got to change. One of the guys I know on Tennessee's death row, his name's Kevin Burns. And um, he actually got ordained. I got to be there for his ordination. And wow. so his first act of being now an ordained minister who is still living on death row was to serve us all communion. The like depth of this person that's condemned to die, serving us, reminding us that we have at the center of our faith and victim of violence. We're taking in the body and blood, as many Christians believe, and we're being transformed by it. It was incredible. But one of the things that Kevin said is, and he's still facing the possibility of his execution, is he said, we need to invite the governor of Tennessee to come pray with us and hear the stories of what God's done in our life. And because the governor of Tennessee is a professing Christian. And I think that's this kind of relational gap, right? Like between if Governor Bill Lee, who now half of the guys on Tennessee's death row have extended that invitation to come visit them, pray with them, hear their testimonials of what God's done in their life. I think it would change everything. I think it would make it a whole lot harder for Mm -hmm. Governor Lee to execute men if he knew them. That's where... 
I think a lot of these things, it's not just a compassion problem, but it's a proximity problem. It's a relationship. And we deliberately keep ourselves insulated from relationships that would require some kind of activism of us, right? (laughs) Why, like, and this is something that as you're talking, I'm realizing that I do that, people do that. Why do you think that we do that? I don't know. I kind of think we we end up thinking we're keeping ourselves comfortable and safe, but we end up actually robbing ourselves of what we're made for, which is to live for something bigger than ourselves, to show love and compassion, especially to people that are really hurting. Mother Teresa is one of the folks that I feel like opened my eyes to that because it's easy to have bumper stickers and t-shirts and talking points, but they don't always demand action. But I think relationships, they do kind of call forth action. And that's what happened for me when like, we're literally seeing people shot in front of our house. Like there comes a point where Martin Luther King said, we're called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the, you know, referring to the story Jesus told. And he said, but after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, we got to do something about the road to Jericho. You know, So that's yeah. what, but that's what puts a fire in my bones on so many of these things is gun violence. Isn't just an issue I care about. It has names and faces. Same with the death penalty. We can name the names of folks that are facing execution right now. I can name the name of names of people that I know are innocent and still uh-huh. facing execution. So that that's how it kind of makes you act. That's why Mother Teresa, she's often known for her passion on abortion. And she was passionate about abortion, but she didn't just have bumper stickers. She didn't like protest outside Planned Parenthood. She brought in children that were abandoned in train stations. She brought in 14-year-old moms, and that's why everybody called her mother. She like earned that name. She also cared about more than abortion. The night before execution, she was calling governors on the phone and saying, do what Jesus would have you do. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Like, stop this execution. You have the power to do it. She was getting in the way of wars and rescuing kids that were victims of bombings. So all of that, that's part of why, uh, you know, in this new book, I use Mother Teresa as a model of what it can really look like, not just to have the bumper stickers and ideology, but to say, the refrain I keep coming back to is, what does love require of us? And I think that's the question on immigration, poverty, the environment is, what does love require of us? What does it look like to love our neighbor as ourself? And what implications might that have when it comes to policies too? And even for bridging the gap across differences between people, it's so easy to boil someone down to a one-dimensional issue. Like I could say, okay, I'm pro-choice and I disagree with Mother Teresa and I think it's awful that she was pro-life. But if I were to say that, I'm also neglecting all of the good that she did within the world and all the other things she was. I think with our conversation we had with Deb Harsma, we, we talked a little bit too about the politics in the United States, but how you can't just boil a human down to a political identity because we're all more than one thing. We're friends or we're parents, we're voters, we're Christians, we're non-Christians, but there's always that common ground that you can find with people. Yeah. Reverend Barber, who's the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign in our country, he talks, the language he uses for it is fusion organizing, right? We're fusing all these different intersecting and interlocking injustices and organizing together. So we're absolutely not going to agree on everything, but that's part of the point. And in fact, uh, just two quick like snapshots of this is on gun violence in our country. 
it's coalitions of gun owners that are actually moving things, moving the barometer more than like even progressives in some of these places. So we've got whole groups of gun owners against assault weapons and hunters concerned about gun violence. And these groups of gun owners that are concerned about gun violence are reaching a whole new audience or persuading Mm -hmm. bipartisan politicians. And it's nuanced and it's beautiful. It's coming out of their heart too, that you can own a 12 gauge to keep like a coyote from eating your baby sheep. But that doesn't mean that we should have AR-15s on our streets. So I think that's really powerful. And on the death penalty too, there's whole groups of conservatives concerned about the death penalty and different people that like in states like Oklahoma that are still actively executing, they're stopping executions from happening and they're closer to abolishing it than just kind of the silos of progressive folks that keep talking to themselves. So I think that's really clutch. I mean, there's folks that I, like, like you said, Sarah, my head spins when I'm talking to them because like one of the guys I interviewed for my book, his name's Ron McAndrew, and he's a former prison warden that oversaw executions. And he executed people and was absolutely haunted by it. And he's one of the most credible voices we have in this country about the damage that the death penalty does, even to prison staff and to prison wardens, to folks who are a part of the machinery of death. Mm -hmm. And he comes out, he's still like a tough on crime guy. When we were interviewing him for a film, he still has a MAGA hat, right? Like, and I like those things. I'm like, wow. (laughs) Wow. I can't, so I might debate other things with him, but the credibility that he has because of what he's seen and even what he's done um, as a former prison warden and executioner, like he can persuade people that just that I can't, you know what I mean? So I think it's so important to kind of meet people where they're at and not just back them into a corner and to Mm -hmm. make room for people to change. My gosh, if I had met my own self like 15 years ago, we would have had a fiery debate, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah and I talk a lot about that. Like you can change your mind with new information that you're given and you're not a hypocrite for doing so. That's huge in our world and in the world of deconstruction and reconstruction. And we should have the freedom to change. Yeah. I think that's often something that people will point to politicians and be like, they voted against this bill back in 2003. And you're like, do you have every single view you had in 2003? Probably not. We expect politicians to be like infallible on changing. We almost put them on a pedestal or idolize them when really they're human beings. And it's good for people to change over time. It's good to progress. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. My, my buddy, Doug Paget heads up a group called Vote Common Good. And one of the projects that they had was called Hindsight 2020. What they were looking at is the 2020 election. And what it did is it made space for people who were Trump supporters in 2020 that wouldn't be now. And so it's kind of making this room. And it's awesome. I mean, I met so many people that it helped me to understand what, Trump was tapping into. So one guy, I remember him saying like, I knew I needed to be flipping tables. I just realized I was flipping the wrong tables. And so there's something like this discontentment, this dissatisfaction with the status quo and with the ivory tower and politicians. There's some like really strange and bizarre and kind of concerning social dynamics there. But it's helpful to see the people behind those that go, yeah, there was something that that it and it wasn't just racism. There was something else that Trump was like tapping into that if we don't sort of meet the people there and talk to them, then there ends up being a, a moral superiority or a self-righteousness 
that the left and progressive circles can mirror that conservatives and the legalistic purity culture folks that I grew up with had that same self-righteousness. And there's the same policing, the cancel culture, the sort of theological litmus test. If you don't, whatever it is, use pronouns or drive a Prius or whatever, like you're not in this crowd, right? There's not room for you. So I think that's always a little bit dangerous self-righteousness is. Yeah. I think that's what happens when we interact with people that think the exact same way as us. When you're really immersed in a community, you don't even realize how the community has its norms. It has its language, its way of saying things. Like I remember being a part of a church group specifically in the UK. There were 30 of us gathered together like students. And they're like, can you raise your hand if you've interacted with more than five non-Christians in the last month? And I raised my hand, but there are only like a handful of us that did. And, you know, at the time as a Christian, I was like, that's really the opposite of the gospel. If you're not interacting with anyone that doesn't think the exact same way as you or doesn't run in the same circles, doesn't live in the same neighborhood. Yeah. It feels really good to be in your echo chamber, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And it's easier. (laughs) It's comforting. Like you said earlier, Shane, it's we're trying to stay in, in our comfort zone and not go outside of it and we're isolating ourselves. I know I do it all the time. So do you tour as well? Sarah said she saw you in Halifax back in the day. And so you were, you said you were also just in Canada. And so do you tour and you speak and what does that usually entail? Yeah, there's a, it's a regular part of my life. So I have a set number of days each month that I'm away from home in Philly and I'm speaking. And sometimes those are an actual linear tour, different city every night or something. But sometimes it's just spread out throughout the month and and have a new book out. So I'm doing some touring with that. But we also do events with the Forge around the country, um, chopping up surrendered firearms and centering people who have been impacted by that. So that's beautiful work. My my wife and I do together too. Katie is a blacksmith. My wife is a blacksmith. Wow, really? She's actually more legit. She actually went to blacksmithing school. So she's more legit than I am. That's so cool. Yeah. (laughs) Bring her on. We want to talk to her. Yeah, there you go. Cool. (laughs) That's the real guest to have. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. So right now you've been touring and talking about your book. Could you explain a bit more about the book? You did say kind of what it was about. Yeah. Actually, Katie has a part of the book that she really helped to shape. It's about really what it means to to champion life and see that every person is made in the image of God and not to confine that to issues or buckets, but to really have a broader look at that. And one of the places I look to for inspiration is the early church. And like, there's so many voices. They spoke out against violence and every form it had. So they were passionately against the death penalty. They were passionately against war and military combat. They spoke out against abortion. They also spoke out against the gladiatorial games, you know, which were seen as sort of this glorification of violence in their culture. And so Cyprian, one of the early bishops of the church, he said, when an individual kills another person, we call it evil as we should. And he says, but somehow when the state does it in mass, we sanctify it and we call it good. Hmm. And so, you know, he's kind yeah. of points out that we often give the state this authority to kill that we would never give to an individual or we give governors the ability to execute. And it's just as evil, whether it's done by a criminal or by a governor or a king or president or prime minister. And I'm also kind of through this new book, Rethinking Life, like grieving that there are competing narratives of Christianity that throughout history that have been 
on one side a, a force for death, a twisted, mm-hmm. terrible theology that paved the way to Hitler, that baptized the Crusades and the colonization of native lands. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, there's also this resistance and this liberating, life-giving version of Christianity. And they're not exactly able to be dissected from each other. Sometimes they're like bound up together. And even now in America, at least in in the U.S., you kind of see that there are these versions of Christianity that seem to look like love and sound like Jesus and others that you're like, whoa, I'm not sure this is any version of Christianity that Jesus, in fact, if this was a few hundred years ago, we would have had a council like in Nicaea to be (laughs) counted as a heresy. Absolutely. And we've seen those too, I think. Hopefully it's a minority, but it sometimes doesn't feel like it. Sarah, did you have any questions that you wanted to get out before we have to wrap up? I guess would be, what do you think are some things that people can do to make sure they're staying out of their own echo chamber? And what are some of your, your advice for how to interact with people that sometimes their beliefs might make us feel super angry, but we need to work together for the common good on a totally different issue? Yeah. So I heard someone once say that the hardest part to running a marathon is not getting to the finish line, but getting to the starting line. So it's kind of like, how do we even get outside of these homogenous, politically, culturally, religious, that people that eat, talk and vote the same? Like, how do we get outside of that? So I think some of it is like, what I've learned is getting alongside of people who are all already kind of trespassing those social boundaries. So folks that are going into the prisons that are already running programs, folks that have hospitality networks of immigrant families that we can maybe start to uh, get involved with. So like not feel like the world revolves around us and we've got to do something brand new that's never been done before. But there's lots of places that you can get involved with reentry work from folks that are coming out of prison or that we can get involved in repairing the harm that was done to Native folks. And I know that's sure a major issue in Canada as as well as it is here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And there's folks that are already a few steps ahead of us. And I I think it's particularly for white folks, non-Native folks, that it's really helpful to be led by folks of color, folks who have lived the other side of some of these histories from us. So we don't always have to lead everything. We can get behind organizations that are led by folks that have been marginalized because of their race or sexuality or whatever it is mm-hmm. and join their organizations and build relationships. I mean, it's all about relationships, not just like big bureaucracies, but I think that's where a lot of people are trying to repair the harm that was done. They do end up creating spaces that we can do that work and join them. That's kind of what been my experience too, you know, as I've joined groups that are working with immigrants. I didn't just go to death row. I went with friends that had kind of opened yeah. the possibilities. Yeah. Up you didn't I, just show oh, up. Hey. Yeah. Right. But my wife, I've been able to take Katie to death row. and It's called unit two of Riverbend. That's Tennessee's death row. My mom's been with me. I've taken a lot of my friends and it changes them. You know, that's why we want the governor to go. Like So I think all that the hard work of relationship building and being a little uncomfortable because no matter who we are, liberal or conservative or whatever, like we're most comfortable around people who are like us. And yet like the people that have expanded and challenged my thinking have often been people who don't just say amen to everything I say, but that that ask good questions. And on the same lines, I guess maybe I'll close by saying, I, I don't know too many people that have been argued into thinking differently. 
Um, oh, that's so like, true. You know, lose an argument. Yeah. And you're like, oh, you're right. But like, <laughs> you know, I know people that their hearts have moved and their heads kind of followed that. And so I try to like think about engaging people's hearts, not just arguing with whatever's in their head. And I found that kind of at least a good starting point. You know, even for groups that don't agree on what to do about homelessness or safe injection sites or whatever, let's start by going down and hanging out with some folks in the park. Let's listen to them. Let's like grab some pizzas. And then when you're like outside of that zone, you can you can go, man, there's not an easy answer to this. I mean, that's one thing that mm-hmm. we're debating in Philadelphia right now is I believe in harm reduction, but like the safe injection sites, while we don't have a good healthcare system, all this is like really complicated. And so we're trying to listen to each other and find a way forward. Yeah. And that's we need more conversations really- like this. So thanks yes, for having absolutely. me. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope, I feel like we were all over the place, but we got a really good like overview of, I, I'm feeling inspired. I don't know about you, Sarah. Yeah. And we really appreciate your time. And where yeah. can the listeners find more of Shane Claiborne, more of the organizations that you're involved with or other voices you want to lift up? Yeah, totally. I did mention that I wasn't exactly overly excited about the social media, but I am moderately <laughs> active on the Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we've got got like all kinds of good stuff happening at Red Letter Christians. So folks can go to our website to redletterchristians.org. And there's hundreds of speakers, writers, musicians, maybe some future guests on your wonderful show that are there, like really living out a robust, beautiful version of faith. And we sometimes say we're harmonizing, but not homogenizing. So we're diverse and that's part of the beauty of this community. Yeah, keep in touch with us at Red Letter Christians. All right. Awesome. We will. Yeah, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you guys too. Let's do it All again right. sometime. Bye. Sounds awesome. Good. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. No, you can't get to heaven. No, you can't get to heaven. In a miniskirt. In a miniskirt. Because God don't.